So when I read and we have any sort of passage from Hebrews, I immediately get totally and completely absorbed and distracted in the Hebrews passage because Hebrews is this fascinating knot of a book. It's got threads that run all throughout and it kind of gets all twisted up. Um, but there's this, this thread of the idea of priesthood and high priests that kind of runs through the book. It's the only New Testament book to mention this dude named Melchizedek, who is uh, from both the Old and New Testaments. And he's this guy who collects a tenth of all of the plunder from Abraham in the Old Testament. And for some reason, the author of the book of Hebrews, who we don't know who he is, decides Melchizedek is the perfect example for the order of priesthood that Christ belongs to. They say he, he, Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if you think back, you're thinking to yourself, okay, priests, Levites, one of the 12 tribes. Wait a minute, the 12 tribes came after Abraham, so how in the world can Melchizedek be a priest of God Most High if Levi hadn't been born yet, let alone the Levites and the priesthood and the temple and the tabernacle and everything that comes with it? And so there's this idea that there's this, this separate set of qualifications that makes Jesus a different kind of high priest than any of the other Jewish priests that had ever come before. And so I, I, I kind of, I read through this, this passage in Hebrews that talks about, you know, the former priests, well, there, there were many of them in number because they kept dying, <laughs> So we needed new ones. And so we made it a hereditary thing, right? When Aaron and Levi finally passed on, we had other men to step in and take their place. We had other priests. We had other people who were ready to carry that mantle because we needed priests. And the old ones kept dying. <laughs> so we needed more. But then there's this one priest who did it very differently. This one priest who is not human, he didn't need to offer sacrifices first for his own sins, and then he was pure enough to offer sacrifices for others. This high priest was God himself made flesh. And so we have Jesus, this high priest who came to earth, who could sacrifice himself for us in ways that no other priest could ever do before him. And if that just sounds like semantics to you, imagine for a moment that instead of coming to church and listening to Melanie and I, you could come to church and God in the flesh, the Son of Man incarnate, the infinite of God made finite could stand behind this microphone instead of me. Which would you pick? I really hope you don't pick me. Like, that's the kind of difference we're talking about. And it, it's hard to fit that kind of a truth into your skull, right? Because you try and think about it. Like, how in the world could the infinite God of the universe who created the cosmos and everything that is, has been, or will be, how do we fit that into the body of a human being? It doesn't. It does, it does not compute. We sit here and we think about it and we can't, Figure it out. It will break your brain if you let it. 
And so there's this, this feeling, this, this word that Melanie hates for different reasons. I went to, to do a research program in New York, <laughs> right? And so I was on Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island, right? If you've ever heard someone from Long Island talk, you know that they have a special way of saying the word awesome, right? And so I lived with this guy all summer, and we did some valet parking, right? And he had a friend who had a friend who owned a restaurant out in the Hamptons. And so people who come and spend $300 for a plate of food tip really well if you park their Rolls Royce. Who knew? You know, and so I spent this weekend with this guy, and I spent all summer researching with this guy, but he didn't say things were awesome. He said things like they're awesome, right? And so he had a friend that he did this valet parking job with, and so he'd say things like, well, me and my friend Augie were parking some cars the other night. And, like, and so I kind of picked up his way of speaking over the course of the summer. And so I came home, well, not home, I came back to school, to college. And I, I hung out with Melanie, and we hadn't seen each other in like 12 weeks. And somehow I said the word awesome. And I must have said it the way Steve said it. Because she looked at me, she's like, no, you do not get to say that that way. <laughs> to which, of course, I spoke it that way for the next like two or three years. And then I forgot about it. And now it might come back. Maybe I'll start saying it that way again. I don't know. So if I start putting on this fake Queen's accent, you know, it's just to get to Melanie. It's okay. But we've kind of used the word awesome the way Steve did all summer. He used it for everything. You know, like you get 50 cents off the Coke that you wanted to buy. Well, that's awesome. You know, you got, you got a guy who's like, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks if my car is by the curb when I'm done paying for dinner. That's awesome. You know, you find the spot that you were worried someone was going to take, and so you can park the car half a block away instead of three blocks away. That's, that's awesome. You get that chemistry thing to go just right that you're working on, and you were worried it was going to take three weeks, and it works the second time. Well, that's awesome. And so we kind of trivialize that word. We, ha we have no hyperbole words left. Whether it's watching the news or listening to your friends Steve and Augie talk about pork and cause, we have no words left to just how big and how awe-inspiring and how terrifying and how deeply unsettling and yet comforting it is to imagine the infinite God of a universe being born in a manger and then sacrificing himself for us. I don't have words for that. Because if I say awesome, you think I got a couple dollars off of my lunch. If I say I love something, you're like, oh, well, it must have just been a really nice lunch. I don't know. Like, our words have lost their meaning because we use them too much. I need to invent new words. I need to learn a new language. I, maybe that's why church services were held in Latin for so long. So the words would stay special. So that we had a word that was reserved to describe just how crazy and big and beyond anything else we'd ever seen or known or dreamed of it is. That God himself came down and talked to a bunch of guys who had no idea what they were doing and instituted a church that would last millennia. I don't have words for that. It's too big. It's too crazy. It's too good. And so we get this, this idea of, of priesthood, where we have this high priest that is bigger and more powerful and more good and more awe-inspiring than any other. That 
who's the priest who intercedes for you. That is the priest who is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, the one through whom and for whom everything was created and without whom the world would not exist. He is your priest. It's too big. It's too good. I just don't have words for it. And so it can get get easy to get a little intimidated by this because now we've got this, this priest, this high priest that's just too big and too good and we can't wrap our heads around it. And it would be easy then to just say, well, I guess we're done. We're never going to understand it. We're never going to fully describe it. We're never going to figure this out. So I guess we just go home. But if you break it down, you start thinking, well, what's a priest for anyway? What does he do? Those Levites, that one in 12 of the tribes of Israel, what do they do all day? They slaughter cows. They sprinkle blood on altars. They burn incense. Why? The Levites were the people who were set apart for special purposes. They were there so that when you needed to speak with God, there was someone who could do that for you, who knew how to do it. If you've ever sat there and think, I need to pray about this, and I don't know where to start. Well, if you were a Jew before the time of Christ, you would have a Levite friend to help with that. Go to the local synagogue and say, I, I have this issue, I have this problem, I need to know. What is it that I do to communicate to God that I have sinned and I need forgiveness? Or I've had a dispute with a neighbor and I need it adjudicated? Or I need to know what is it that I should do on the Sabbath because I have no idea what all those dozens of laws you've set up are actually meant to do. I need connection to God and I don't know where to find it and so I come to you, priest, That is your job. Help me connect to the divine. But the priests kept dying. We needed new priests. We needed better priests. We needed priests who didn't have to sacrifice for their own sins first. Just to get themselves and their souls clean enough that they could focus on our sins and our issues. It it was a flawed system. It was a step in the right direction. It was the right thing at the right time. But it wasn't the end plan. The end plan was Christ, the infinite made flesh. The human divine priest, the perfect one. And it can get easy to find this this idea of separation because now... We have the idea where if if the priests are the ones that are supposed to connect us to God, does that mean that any time you find yourself swearing at a coworker, you have to call Kevin and Melanie, and we have to offer, you know, well, did you bring your pigeon? Okay, good. Let's let's slaughter the thing, you know, you know, do our thing. And maybe some of you like birds, so I'm not going to go into graphic detail here, but it's not clean. No, we don't do it that way anymore, do we? Because that was the whole point of the perfect 
omnipotent, omnipresent at all times, in all places, in all ways, all powerful. He is the high priest now. We go to him. A couple chapters earlier, Hebrews tells us we can approach the throne with confidence. Because that is where we receive mercy and we find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne they're talking about is not the throne in the temple. It's not the throne that we imagine in our little closets, in our prayer rooms or whatever. It's not the throne that we have in our hearts. It's not meant to be metaphorical. The author of Hebrews is saying you can approach the literal throne of God with confidence. The actual throne of God. You can walk into that place with confidence. Because the one that we have interceding on our behalf, the priest that we have, is perfect and all-powerful and good and all-loving. That is awesome. And so now we kind of get the far off, the powerful, the crazy, the too big for my head, the I don't know what to do with this, and it starts to feel just a tiny bit remote. It starts to feel like, well, I have these little concerns, and I don't know if I can approach the throne of God with confidence to say, hey, I need some food. I don't know if I can approach the throne of God with confidence to say, hey, I'm kind of a crappy husband. I don't know if I can approach the throne of God with confidence to say my job is horrifyingly unfulfilling and I hate dragging myself out of bed in the morning. You you feel like, I might be complaining too much. It starts to feel like there's this, you have to hit a certain threshold. It has to be an eight on the scale before you can go to that throne. You know, like, and I don't know, if I go with a 7.5, is he just going to throw me out? I don't know. Like, you start to second guess everything. Because when you start to truly acknowledge how big and how powerful and how awesome that is, you look at your own day-to-day life and you're like, well, that's not big or powerful or awesome. That's just life. And you can start to withdraw and kind of pull back. That's the temptation, but we can't give in to that. You don't pull back. You don't run away. You run too. Because when we look at the passage of what Jesus actually does. We have the example of God incarnate, God made flesh, who actually walked with two feet and sandals and had dirt and dust and probably horse crap on his feet. When he's actually walking through the dust of the earth and he's on his way somewhere and he's on the road and there's this one really loud, obnoxious, blind dude off to the side of the road He's screaming his guts out, and everyone's like, no, your problem is not important enough for the son of David. The crowd tries to shush him. The crowd tries to keep him away. And he yells louder. The incarnate son of God, the infinite made finite, the God made flesh, The creator of the universe, the one who set into motion every galaxy you've ever seen or squinted at in the night sky, stopped what he was doing and listened to a screaming out loud blind man. 
Because he had a need. He had a problem. He needed something, and God was there for him. Because we really can approach the literal throne of God with confidence. That is where we find mercy and grace. And if you hear the words mercy and grace and just think nice things, well, they are. (laughs) And I have a whole beef stroganoff story about how I remember which is mercy and which is grace. And some of you have heard that story. I don't have time for it right now. It involves me puking and my parents being great people. (laughs) But the idea that we can receive mercy and grace from the throne of God, mercy being the remittance of a punishment we've earned. We don't get punished for the stuff we've done, at least not by God. Consequences happen. But then the grace, the, the free gift that is totally and completely unearned, It's like walking into a courtroom, approaching the bench uninvited, and saying, okay, judge, here's the deal. I'm guilty of this traffic ticket. I would like you to forgive it, and then I would also like the court to pay my insurance for the next three months. And the judge says yes. I don't have words for that. That is how God loves you. That we can approach the literal throne of God with confidence to receive mercy and grace. But now we are a priesthood of all believers. So we have our high priest. There was always a high priest. Aaron, Levi, you know, the whole deal. And now the high priest is Christ himself. We can go directly to him. But some people don't. Some people will never step into a church, and some people don't know how to pray. They don't know they can go to that throne of of glory with confidence. They don't know. Nobody's told them. They think that God's mad at them. They don't know that God loves them yet. And so now we become priests, each and every single one of us. Because you know what we do? We connect people to God who don't know how to pray for themselves. Sometimes people don't know what they don't know. Maybe they haven't thought much about God. Maybe they haven't really processed how they feel about themselves or what they heard once when they were kids and about Sunday school or whatever. And now they're just a little bit bitter and they're not going to come to our church on Sunday morning. They just won't. And so, priests, God sends you. Because we have this awesome, too big, too crazy 
can't fit my skull news. And God forbid we set requirements on when and where people can hear about it. God forbid we say, you've got to come to us before I will tell you about how much God loves you. God forbid that we go through the grocery store and not show God's love to the mom who's got five kids in a cart. God forbid we not go about our day-to-day business of seeking to connect people to the awesome, almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, gracious, and merciful God of the universe. Because that is our job. I would love for everyone to come to church on Sunday mornings, but some people won't. But the church is bigger than this building. Probably the nicest thing about Sunday morning is that we get to take communion together. I love that part. And usually there's something of repentance in communion. There's this idea of turning away, of changing in some way to say, not that, but this. So maybe this morning, you're not that, but this, is realizing that I thought I had to only go to God with the big things. But instead, I choose to accept that I can walk into that throne room And I know that if I look God in the eye, he will look back with love. Maybe for the first time you're actually going to ask him for something. Believing that he will give it to you. Ask for what you need, whether it's daily bread or forgiveness, or simply the strength to be more holy and righteous. Or maybe the new thing for you this morning is this idea of being a priest. Being someone who connects other people to God. 